Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome to yet another episode of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, your host for another week. We've reached June of 2018, and honestly, uh, for a, a a Knowledge from the Couch weather report that I know you're all looking forward to, not too bad outside, really not the worst I've ever seen in June. Now, of course, because I've said that, and of course, because superstition is reality, uh, now that I've said that, the, the the terrible death, hot weather, and humidity will come sweeping over the Midwest um, soon and envelop us in uh, terribleness for the next, you know, four straight months because, you know, that's what happens when you're in the middle of a flat-ass country where the mountains on one side block all the good shit from the West Coast and then you're just this wide-open plain of, of, of insanity. So, anyhow... That has nothing to do with the show. Welcome to the show. If you're new, thanks for for tuning in for the first time. This is a show about history. History, hopefully, about things that you might find interesting or about characters that maybe you never heard of or maybe you know about, but you never knew the kind of interesting stories behind those figures. That is what this show is about. If you're a new person, if you're a regular, welcome back once again to the craziness as i said in the prequel episode to this to this podcast um uh, uh, of june we are going to cover some some different kind of stuff this month uh we're going to go more into the psychology side some of you know but most of you probably don't that before i was a history major in school before i i got my degree in history from the university of nebraska i was a psychology major before all that happened now of course I wasn't a psychology major because I really thought psychology was great or I was good at it or anything. It was just kind of the thing that I thought I would like to do or something I would like to do, you know, something with going forward. Now, of course, that was a 17 and 18 year old's fucking dumbass mind that doesn't know anything about anything. But in the course of taking psychology courses before I uh, changed my major to history, I learned a great deal about people who've come up with psychological theories and the way those theories were implemented. Now, we're going to talk about some of that stuff this month, and it's not all going to necessarily, you know, stem directly from psychology in general, but this month in in particular, we're kind of going into, you know, experimental territory. I'm not talking about experimental for the podcast The podcast is going to sound or look exactly like it does every single week. But we're talking about experiments that use humans as subjects. Now, this first episode of the month, we're going to talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment, one of the most infamous experiments by a man named Zimbardo, who put the experiment together to kind of see how people would act when given certain roles and letting them basically run with it. 
We will cover that all today, and in this month, we will cover a, uh, a, a vast variety of these type of human experimentation. Uh, some of it's going to be more interesting and kind of thought-provoking like today, and some of it's going to be pretty terrible. So just a forewarning, a couple of things I'll talk about in the upcoming weeks are not going to be the funnest things that you'll ever hear because humans are terrible, terrible people. One of the uh, One of the drawbacks to having a very evolved mind is having a mind that is creatively awful. And uh, you will find that here, that humans are extremely great at compartmentalizing the things that they are bad with and and the things they are good with. So it is not surprising that somebody can go, say we talk about a concentration camp and some Nazi can go and gas a bunch of innocent people and then go home to his wife and kids and dog and be the kindest person on earth. It is really, really strange. It is the human condition, and it is honestly one of the more ridiculous things you'll ever think about or talk about when it comes to humanity. So without further ado, let's get into the brain of the human, and in particular, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Guys, now it's the Couch Podcast. Stick with me. So the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, much like uh, uh, the last months of the of the space race and and what have you, I'm I'm actually kind of digging a little closer to uh, contemporary history, things that are really not all that old. Now, if you have listened to the podcast a great deal, most of my content takes place usually in the 1800s, sometimes in the early 1900s. I haven't shied away from going back farther than that, for example, like the Columbus episode and things of that nature, which are many hundreds of years old now. But lately, and every once in a while in the past, but lately I've really been into stuff that is a little more contemporary, meaning that it is closer to our time, our time being the present time, than I have in the past. And this one is no Different. The Stanford Prison Experiment took place in August of 1971. This may be the most recent part of history that we're going to cover in the show, or at least tied with it as the Apollo Project, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, ended in around the same time in the early 1970s. And the Stanford Prison Experiment, basically, on the bare bones of it, is an experiment made by a man named Philip Zimbardo, who I mentioned in the top of the show. Philip Zimbardo was a psychology professor at Stanford University, Stanford University being in the Palo Alto area of California. What he wanted to do was to see what would happen if he put a bunch of students into a really controlled environment and had some of those students play the role of prison guards 
and some of the other students play the role of uh, prisoners in this sort of fake prison that he was going to set up. So it, it, any as any good psychology you know experiment was, and, and this is kind of how it worked at UNL as well, the students and the professors doing psychology research at a university typically would come up with a type of experimentation, a type of experiment they would have, you know, like every question sort of, of, of asked and answered about the scientific method. They would have research methods. They would have control groups and um, uh, experimental groups, and they would go on and on and on. And, and when they would use human subjects, meaning people who were going to become a part of their experiment, they would always say, hey, sign this release so that you're going to be a part of the experiment and you know how it's going to go. This is the the role you're going to play or this is what you're going to do. This is the questions you're going to answer. You're going to read this piece of paper, uh, whatever it is. And in return, you'll either get, you know, monetary compensation or you'll get uh, time towards something. Um, I remember when I was uh, an undergrad student in psychology and, and to be to be completely fair, my undergrad psychology didn't cover a ton of what these uh, these higher level upperclassmen, undergrads and graduate students and professors were doing because the way psychology is split up at the university level, at least at the University of Nebraska was the first about year and a half to two years or about three to four semesters were there covering intro topics. So like intro to psychology and uh, behavioral psych and, and abnormal psych and, and the things uh, covering every swath of the land of, of the land, basically just telling you, hey, this is what psychology is. This is what you're gonna do, you know, if you're gonna ever pursue this. And then there was a research course right in the middle, which was like the 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 turning point either way that said, hey, this is research methodology. And then every class that you take psychology wise, usually after this, is either gonna be very uh very focused on a particular type of psychology in an advanced way. Or it's going to be a class where you are going to be using this research methodology to uh, to undergo your own, you know, little psycho- psychological experiments and stuff. So you need to get subjects to help you out as part of undergrad classes, the very low level undergrad classes. Part of those classes typically for your grade was that you could, if you wanted to, go be a part of these upper classmen experiments or grad student or uh, professor all these uh these these studies you could go be a part of those and then you get credit for your class as a person um possibly also monetary compensation and they get you know data for their research obviously this is a little more um this is a little more solidified this is a little more uh, legitimate i guess is the best word i can think of nowadays as ethics kind of ebb and flow and weave over time as, as to their uh, to what is ethical and what is unethical. Um, but at this point in 1971, you know, psychology is a, is, a, is a legit field of scientific study, but there are still a lot of blurry lines and a lot of gray areas as to how we can find out what we need to find out with human beings and, and what it's going to be and where, where do we draw the line, where do we, where do we stop with this sort of stuff where where do we go from this is a reasonable experiment to this is something that is totally and, and utterly unethical and this this the stanford prison experiment really did a great job of showing us that there was probably a line that was almost certainly crossed at, at, at a certain point in time and and we will get into that here in just a second but 
the setting is, of course, 1971, Stanford in California. Dr. Philip Zimbardo is going to do a research experiment. He puts out the uh, the letter to, you know, whatever, the flyer, everything that you do when you're going to get subjects. And he says, hey, I will pay you all $15 a day to be a part of my experiment. Now, 15 bucks a day doesn't sound like a ton, but in 20 17 or 2018 dollars that I'm reading here it's like 94 bucks a day which really isn't that terrible actually if you're a broke college student like if it was me I would definitely be like hey I'm gonna take like a hundred dollars a day to do some stupid shit for like two weeks okay cool great I'll go make myself you know like a grand or so and that'll buy me a whole bunch of beer or help me pay off some of my student loans or my my credit hours or whatever it is it'll be awesome this would be dope so he puts out the flyer that says, hey, I'll pay you guys 15 bucks a day if you want to come um, be a part of my psychology study. And he gets about 70 or so responses. And from those 70 people, all, all men, all college-aged men, he picks out 24 of those men and, and basically picks out the ones who he feels are the most moderate-minded, you know, even-minded, even-keeled, you know, laid-back individuals um, that could probably take what he was going to do in this psychological method. So he selects 24 males, um, predominantly white, predominantly middle class. I mean, this is Stanford in the 70s, so, hey, this is kind of what you're going to get. Um, it's probably not exactly correct if you wanted to do, like, a one-to-one study of, like, this is what prison is like because real life prison is definitely not 24, you know, 100% white male middle class. That is not what you're going to get at all. But the idea is a legitimate thought idea. So he goes and he says, okay, you're all going to participate in a 7 to 14 day study where you're going to receive 15 bucks a day and um, you are going to basically play the role of either a prisoner in a, in a prison or you're going to pay play the role excuse me of a guard in the prison neither role was really terribly well explained to any of the participants and this was intentional because Zimbardo wanted them to sort of play out their actions as they would in the natural course of things so basically there were 24 participants, like we said, 12 and 12 on each side. So you start with 9 and 9, and there were going to be three alternates on each side in case somebody had to drop out because of illness or for any other reason. And this would this would definitely play into the prisoner's side here as we get into it. Basically, what they were told... They they first he basically first coin flipped to, to choose you know which side you're on so he didn't just go okay I pick uh, you 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 and you and you and you're all guards and then you guys over here are all prisoners he basically went to each guy and then just was like coin flip you know you're a guard or you're a uh, your prisoner and then so on so forth down the line until you had an even distribution of of each one the guard characters were basically told hey this is an experiment that is going to look at the reactions, and everything that has to do with the prisoners. So the guards are basically told that, yes, you are a part of the experiment, but you're mostly just on the outside looking in for the most part. You're going to kind of help um, um, facilitate the experiment, but you are not the ones being studied. The ones being studied are the ones who have been assigned as prisoners. The ones assigned as prisoners, on the other hand, were basically told, hey, 
when the experiment starts, you're going to be treated like a prisoner. We are going to arrest you with actual police, which he actually did. He somehow got the uh, the Palo Alto police involved in this experiment. They would come to their homes and literally arrest them for some crime, and it was usually like, oh, for theft or whatever. They arrest them for some crime, take him in, da da da, da book them, and they would go to the 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 prison that he had uh, constructed in a 35-foot section of a basement area of Jordan Hall, which is a place on Stanford's campus. Uh, It's Stanford's psychology building. The prison that he built had two fabricated walls, one at the entrance and one at the cell wall to block observation. Each cell was 6 by 9 feet and contained only a cot for each prisoner. In contrast, the guards would live in a very different environment and they would be separated from the prisoners. They were given rest and relaxation areas and other regular old creature comforts. So basically, what he wanted to do was to see what would happen when people who were not prisoners and who were not guards were put together, given a role to play, and see what would happen once he started to induce things like disorientation, depersonalization, and de-individuation in the participants, especially in the prisoners. So it was. It's. It seems like a pretty cool study when you think about it on top of the uh, of the very top of your head. Like, hey, we're just going to put these people kind of in a. You know, it, it almost sounds like a reality TV show, to be completely honest. Like, we're going to dump 24 people in a house, and 12 of them are going to be prisoners, and 12 of them are going to be guards. Let's just see what happens. The guards were told um, uh, during their orientation, orientation session the day before that they could not physically harm the prisoners, nor could they withhold food or drink from the prisoners. Um, Zimbardo can be seen talking to the guards if you watch any of the some of the footage that is told or, or or some of the footage told some of the footage taken during this experiment. He says, "quote You can create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, a sense of fear to some degree. You can create a notion of arbitrariness that their life is completely controlled by us, by the system, by you, by me, and they'll have no privacy. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways." In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, in this situation, we'll have all the power and they'll have none. Basically, he said, hey, you can't hit these people. You can't do anything that, you know, is going to cause them any sort of physical harm. And you can't just tell them, hey, you can't eat or drink. Beyond that, though, you can basically do whatever you want. You can basically psychologically torture these people if you feel like it, as long as you don't lay hands on them in in a violent manner. The prisoners, on the other hand, were not given sort of any sort of orientation. They were only told, hey, the experiment is going to probably take place around one of these days. Be ready to be involved. What happened was these men, like I just said, were actually had had real police come to their houses, arrest them for real, like not fake police, like in the study, actual Palo Alto police came to their houses, arrested the 12 people, took them to the police station, went through the entire booking process where they were fingerprinted and they were actually booked into custody and then were blindfolded and handed over then to the fake prison, which is in the Jordan Hall basement, the Stanford Psychology Building, where they were then um, put into, you know, quote unquote prison and the experiment would begin. So already when you start the experiment, you're already talking about this dehumanization. You've already basically put them through an extremely realistic sort of you know, sort of arrest that already is going to put them on the other side of the prison guards. You know, 
you would think you, you would think when you're when you're looking at this type of experiment and you put yourself in there and you go, how would I react if I was a part of this thing? You know, I would always keep my head. I'd always just you know keep it in the back of my head. Oh, I know it's just an experiment. I know it's just an experiment. But the human brain and personality is so ridiculous and so creative. And I know we we keep talking about this whole thing every single week about the whole you know the human brain is is very evolved and that kind of is, is a double-edged sword because on the one hand we can go to the moon on the other hand we can be complete and total assholes and it works both ways that was a huge part of this experiment people got just immersed in the in the role that they were playing and the way he started it best was he gave the the prisoners this sense of realness this sense of hey these are actual cops arresting you and we are booking you in the station, and we are doing all this stuff, and we are blindfolding you, and we are taking your ass to prison. You know, even if they knew it wasn't real in their heads, it felt real. And the guards obviously are told, hey, this is the 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 leniency, like this is the line that you can't cross, but you can do anything on the other side of this line. You have the tools you need to you know, be a successful prison guard. And the prison guard students were given basically khaki colored clothing that they bought from a military surplus store. They were given uh, reflective sunglasses so the prisoners couldn't look them in the eyes. And they were given wooden batons that basically helped, you know, fuel the illusion that these guys were real ass prison guards. So they get together and the experiment begins. The prisoners were assigned three to a cell. So you'd have a cell with three cots in it. Uh, you would also have, they also made it like a sort of a small closet in a corner, and that closet was going to be uh, for solitary confinement, and then you had uh, a small sort of quote-unquote yard area where the prisoners could be taken to to have, you know, some sort of like free walking around time. And in addition, you had a larger area off to the side where the prisoners, uh, guards, the, the guards would basically hang out there, and the guards actually would pull... Uh, three eight-hour shifts during the day, and they were allowed to leave the campus if they wanted to once the uh, their shift, you know, so to speak, was over, and uh, you know, they would they would get to to do you know the nice stuff where they would come to work, you know, so to speak, the work, and they would come and do what they were going to do, then they could leave. Whereas the prisoners had to stay twenty-four hours a day until the experiment was over. So. After a relatively uneventful first day, you know, everybody's still kind of getting their feet wet on how this sort of thing feels. On the second day, the prisoners in cell number one decided to blockade their cell door with their cots, and then they took off their stocking caps, which they were given uh, as part of their, their garb, refusing to come out or follow any of the guards' instructions. Guards from other shifts volunteered to work extra hours to assist in subduing this first sort of prison riot and subsequently attacked the prisoners with fire extinguishers, you know, because they couldn't hit them with batons or anything, but they could sure as shit, I guess, get the fire extinguisher out and blast them without being supervised by the research staff. They found that handling nine cellmates with only three guards per shift was very challenging, so one of the guards suggested that they use psychological tactics to help control the guards so that they could watch over them, you know, in a three-to-nine manner. As I said, there are nine uh, guards and nine prisoners at uh, this moment since there are three alternates in each one. They then 
the guards then basically set up what they called a privileged cell in which prisoners who were not involved in the riot were treated with special rewards, such as higher quality meals. The privileged inmates chose not to eat the meal, at this point at least, in commiseration with their fellow prisoners. So basically in solidarity, they chose to basically side with their fellow prisoners. And at this point, you can already tell that they have all started to fall into their role-playing things. Like they, the, the, the guards, you know, going, hey... We need to control these. We need to control these prisoners. We have to control these prisoners. So we got to come up with some shit to do. Let's come up with some different stuff. Okay, this is the privilege table. So we'll definitely try to treat the ones who aren't doing the stuff against us with the good stuff. And hopefully that sort of punishes the uh, the the rest of them for doing bad stuff. And it'll kind of put them back into line. You know, let's work extra shifts, this and that. And then the prisoners, on the other hand, kind of start to you know, embody the identity of the prisoner. They start to rebel. They start to feel like they are less than the guards, that they are against the guards. You know, it's this one, you know, me versus you sort of thing. It did not take but 24 hours, basically, to really get into their characters. They got so into it, in fact, that a lot of the guards would basically only refer to the inmates by their inmate number. So each of these 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 prisoners was given a number, you know, that was sort of the same as like, hey, if you were to actual prison, you'd be known by your name for sure. But you also have this sort of this prisoner number that is assigned to you as well. A lot of the guards started to only refer to these prisoners by their number, not their names, which was, you know, another way to sort of dehumanize and de-individualize them. Whereas the prisoners, some of them started to just sort of accept the reality, this new reality for them, that they were their number, that they were this sort of less than being. After only 36 hours of the experiment, one prisoner began to act crazy, as Philip Zimbardo would describe. Uh, he said, quote, number 8612, <laughs> he's referring to them, of course, by their numbers as well, because he is a part of this thing. He sort of acts like the prisoner's supervisor, and he actually got a, a grad assistant of his to act as the warden, quote unquote, of the prison, while then they had you know the nine prisoners and the nine uh, guards. He said, quote, number 8612 then began to act crazy, to scream, to curse, to go into a rage that seemed out of control. It took quite a while before we became convinced that he was really suffering and that we had to release him. Guards would force these prisoners to repeat their assigned numbers back to them to reinforce the idea that this was their new identity. Guards soon used these prisoner counts to harass the prisoners using physical punishments such as protracted exercise for errors in the prisoner count, things like push-ups and sit-ups and other things like that. Sanitary conditions then declined rapidly, exacerbated by the guards' refusal to allow some of the prisoners to urinate or defecate anywhere but in a bucket placed in their cell. Literally, these guards were coming up with this stuff as the experiment would go on. They literally... I th they felt like the only way they could truly embody the guard mentality would be to completely and utterly dehumanize and start to treat these fellow men that were just nobodies before the experiment to them, all just a bunch of random dudes, these fellow men as nothing more than basically animals or livestock rather than actual, you know, fellow human beings. The guards would not let the prisoners empty some of their sanitation buckets as 
as forms of punishment. Uh, they would have some of the, the the more, I guess, uppity prisoners, in their opinion, keep those buckets that they would poop and pee in in their cells, leading to the you know a, a decreased uh, uh, quality of life, I guess you can call it. Mattresses were placed in their cells, and then sometimes the guards would uh, not let the prisoners uh, use their mattresses, so they'd make them you know sleep on the floor instead of of sleeping on their mattresses. Several car several guards, excuse me, became increasingly cruel as the experiment continued. Experimenters reported that approximately one third of the guards exhibited genuine sadistic tendencies. Most of the guards actually were upset when eventually this experiment did come to an end because for some reason they were really into being insanely cruel to these prisoners. On the uh, fourth day of the experiment, apparently some of the guards actually heard a rumor that the one guy, the crazy guy we just talked about who was screaming and going nuts that they had to actually release from experiment, they actually heard that he was going to come back with his friends and free the remaining inmates, like a jailbreak situation. Zimbardo, obviously, who was overseeing the entire thing, and all the guards disassembled the prison and moved it to a different floor of the building with all the prisoners. Then Zimbardo himself waited in the basement in case the released prisoners showed up and was going to tell them that the experiment was already over. The released prisoner, of course, never did return, and then they rebuilt the prison in the basement. Some of the prisoners actually even internalized, as Zimbardo would argue, the roles that they had taken on as an inmate or as a prisoner. Some of them had stated that they would accept parole, even if it meant forfeiting their pay, despite the fact that quitting would have achieved the same result without any sort of delay. So basically, they had become so absorbed in the story, so absorbed in being a prisoner, that they would go through a fake parole hearing just to get out of the prison, even if Zimbardo said, hey, if you go through this quote-unquote parole hearing, I'm not going to give you any of the money that you would have made. They were willing to accept the bet, even though since this wasn't a real prison, they could have just quit, had their money, and left anyway without any of that stuff. They had become so internalized in the role that they were playing that they would have accepted no money just to leave and gone through a stupid parole hearing that wasn't even real because this whole thing was fake. Zimbardo argued that they had no reason for continued participation in the experiment, having lost all monetary compensation, yet they would because they had internalized that prisoner identity. Prisoner 416, who was a newly admitted standby prisoner, one of the three alternates who who came in when the other guy basically you know went crazy and had to quit. Prisoner 416, who entered the game, expressed concern about the treatment of the other prisoners. You know, he popped in and said, "Oh shit, this is really bad. This is this is not a good deal. I don't like this." When he was going through this and sort of stating his concerns, the guards responded by abusing him even more when he refused to eat his sausages 416 saying he was on a hunger strike the guards then confined him to solitary confinement in that aforementioned dark closet the guards then instructed the other prisoners to repeatedly bang and punch on the door while shouting insults at 416 the guards said he would be released from solitary only if the prisoners gave up their blankets and slept on their bare mattresses which all but one refused to do. They weren't even going to go to bat for their guy. This is a way that he was basically helping 
torture this young man who just jumped into the experiment and was like, oh shit, this is bad, and then it, it became bad. Eventually, Zimbardo aborted the Stanford prison experiment with, when Christina Maslock, who was a grad student in psychology and uh, a girl that he was dating at the time, walked in, watched what was happening, and objected very strongly to the conditions of the prison after she was introduced to the experiment because Zimbardo was like, hey, look what I did. Look at, look at the thing I made. It's really interesting. She's like, Jesus Christ, Phil. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, you got to stop this. Zimbardo noted that of the more than 50 people who had observed the experiment, Maslach was the only one who questioned it, its morality, which is already another terrible thing. Like, literally, he didn't keep it a complete secret from everybody else. Zimbardo showed this to a lot of his colleagues. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of them with their 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 corncob pipes and tweed jackets, you know, stroking their beards and saying, yes, of course, this is exactly how people act, you know, when they're put into these uh, the, these sort of roles. And only Christina was like, Jesus, dude, you have to stop. This is this is definitely this is definitely one of those things where you can sort of look at it and be like, this is wrong. Like, I, I can't exactly say why this is, you know, wrong or I can't, you know, uh, put it in the way where it's like, well, this is ethical uh, uh, mistreatment number one, two, three, four and five and six. But she said, yeah, this is just bullshit. Like they shouldn't. These are normal people all of a sudden acting out these terrible roles. And after only six days of the planned two-week duration, the experiment was formally stopped and discontinued. So what did we end up learning from this extremely short experiment, an experiment that should have lasted at very least seven days and actually was planned to go for 14 entire days? We basically see and learn that we basically favor situational attribution of behavior over dispositional attribution. And what that means is... The situation that these guys were in was was you know what was forcing their behavior, what was directing their behavior, rather than them themselves having this on the inside. So basically, the situation, rather than each of their individual personality, was causing the participants' behavior, whether it was the, the self-deprecation or internalization of the prisoner role on the part of the inmates, or this cruel, abusive, uh, you know, power uh, uh, struggle that the the guards were basically using as their own authority. It also illustrates, you know, cognitive dissonance and the power of authority, especially when it's given to these sort of uh these guys who have really no no means or no no good reason to to do what they did, yet they still would go and do it. Now of course there were some there was some criticism of this experiment, like I was talking about at the top of the show with psychological experimentation and, and studies being formed. You have to try your best to eliminate a lot of outside interference. Um, a thing called the Hawthorne effect is, is, is something that when you are being observed, you are going to act differently just based on the fact that someone is watching you rather than if you don't think anyone's watching you, then you'll act you know, as you would always act. So there was that sort of thing because the participants all knew that they were being observed by Zimbardo at the very least, if not others. They still, even knowing, though, that they were being observed, would act differently than normal. Some of the guards felt the need to show their dominance even when it wasn't completely necessary. They still would act out in uh, that way. So even, be, even with the Hawthorne effect being in effect, even though they knew they were being watched, they still would change their behavior. But that is a big glaring hole in the experiment because if you want to, tr if you wanted to truly see how those things were acting out, 
then you would you know try to conduct this experiment basically in a multiple way where say you got 60 participants and you would go 20 20 and 20 you know where you would say okay this group has 10 prisoners and 10 guards and we're going to watch this group this group has 10 prisoners 10 guards and we're not going to watch this group and this group has 10 prisoners and 10 guards and uh, this and that and the other thing. So you have like a control group and you have an experimental group. Maybe you have a double-blind experimental group, whatever it is. So you're going to basically take out as many factors as you can so that the experimental group can get the best outcome that you're looking for. You're basically looking for something in your study, but if you only have one group that you're focusing on, of course you're going to have the the outlier things and there's going to be outside interference. It's just not going to be a good experiment. And that's kind of the way that a lot of critics sort of think of of this study. You know, obviously it has these, these drastic consequences and it was very much a good thing to see, hey, this is what happens when people do this kind of shit. And we're going to get into a, a an even more recent example of how this works but it wasn't exactly the best set-up experiment when you get down to brass tacks. Zimbardo was basically unable to remain a neutral observer because he put himself into the experiment as sort of the prison the prison superintendent, the prison, you know, uh, uh, running the whole thing. Uh, conclusions and observations drawn by the experimenters were largely subjective and anecdotal, and the experiment is practically impossible for other researchers to accurately reproduce that's the whole point of experiments in the long run is not only can you do this once can you do this in a replicatable way over and over and over again and get uh consistent results that's when you start to be able to prove you know these sort of 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 hypotheses that you come up with that is very difficult to do in psychology because psychology deals with the unpredictability of the human mind. It is still very possible, and even to this day, it is much, much better handled than it was in the 1970s when this, when this study ran. In fact, one of the prison guards actually said that he took, uh, he took example of, of one of the guards um, from Cool Hand Luke, the movie from 1967, uh, and that he was going to to mimic that particular guard and do that kind of stuff in the experiment. So we already came in with a bias before the everything, before it all even started. He said, quote, what came over me was not an accident. It was planned. I set out with a definite plan in mind to try to force the action, force something to happen so that the researchers would have something to work with. After all, what could they possibly learn from guys sitting around like it was a country club? So I consciously created this persona. I was in all kinds of drama productions in high school and in college. It was something I was very familiar with, to take on another personality before you step out onto stage. I was kind of running, uh, running my own experiment in there by saying, how far can I push these things, and how much abuse will these people take before they say, knock it off? But the other guards didn't stop me. They seemed to join in. They were taking my lead. Not a single guard said, I don't think we should do this, which, you know, kind of says it all about the experiment in the long run. You know, a guy was doing this in a biased manner, but nobody really stopped him. So how does this apply in real life, you know, outside the bounds of, of some experiment giving some dudes 15 bucks a day to basically become torturous to each other? The best example in current time was that acts of torture, the acts of prisoner torture and abuse at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Now, if you are too young to remember when this was happening in uh, 2002, 
um, the United States basically declared a formal war on terrorism, which basically gave the United States a broad brush to send troops to various places on Earth in order to uh, crush terroristic forces, basically as a response to the tragedy on 9-11. Um, for the most part, it was seen as as a way to find Osama bin Laden and and do what you had to do there, which is why a lot of U.S. forces in 02 went into Afghanistan. But in 2003, the claim that there are weapon, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq led to the United States uh, invasion of Iraq of 03. And in 2004, we saw this this prisoner torture and abuse at Abu Ghraib, if you are um, uh, familiar with the pictures, uh, the most famous one is the dude in the orange garb standing on top of the bucket with his arms spread out wide with a black hood on his head and prisoner guards basically standing next to him laughing and stuff like that. Basically, the scandal kind of kind of came out uh, 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 of what was going on there and people were outraged. They couldn't believe that you know the 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 glorious troops of the United States, these freedom fighters, these wonderful you know uh, 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 beings full of of ethics and morality and and good old boys could could do these terrible awful things to these prisoners. And originally, it was you know was said basically, oh, these are quote unquote a few bad apples, you know, of the bunch ruining everything rather than an institutional type problem. Well. Uh, uh, Zimbardo, who is still alive at this point, says, hey, that looks a lot like what happened when I did my experiment at Stanford. Like, all of a sudden, these people who are not used to be in, in, in positions of power and authority, the guards, so to speak, or the United States soldiers, were then put in that uh, in that role, and those men who were prisoners then suffered the consequences for that. Since this sort of thing was basically sanctioned by the governments uh, who were doing the prisoner taking, uh, there was a lot more terribleness that uh, that underwent the that 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 came upon the, the the prisoners of Abu Ghraib that was put upon by the soldiers who are now in the uh, sort of the prison guard warden role. Uh, if you want to read more about that stuff, we could probably do a whole episode on that, but we're not going to. It's just sort of a, a nice way to link a more contemporary thing with what happened to the Stanford prison experiment. Go to uh, just Google Abu Ghraib torture and prisoner abuse, and you will be very angry, um, and you will not believe that that literally just happened in 2004. So, I mean, it seems like a long time ago. 14 years seems like a long time, but it really... Well, in the big picture, not a terribly long time ago, uh, not long enough to go that I can ve very, you know, I can still very clearly remember those sort of things happening when it came out that that was happening. It's pretty fucked up, and it it it's tough to argue against the fact that when people are put in positions of power and authority over others and given wide range, you know, by those in authority over those people to do what they had to do to quote unquote put these people into line or whatever it is, the links that those people would go through to do these terrible things. And it was all seen originally with the Stanford uh, prison experiment made by Philip Zimbardo. And now, after all that really sad stuff, your fact of the week. Did you know that an armadillo's shell is actually bulletproof? 
Uh, in fact, one time a Texas man was actually hospitalized when a bullet he shot in an armadillo ricocheted off the animal and hit him in the jaw, being a very nice and extreme form of karma for the man. And interestingly enough, uh, fact-wise, this is, now that I'm thinking of it, not even the first time we've done an armadillo-based fact on the show. I guess we are now the armadillo fact show as well. And so it goes, another episode in the bag for Knowledge from the Couch. This has been your 36th full-length episode with all the many episodes. I believe we are now up to a 40th episode, basically, plus all the prequels. So we are pretty close to 50 uh, episodes of content, but that is your formally 36th episode of the show. Guys, you can find the show anywhere podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Overcast. Tune in anything that you go to your respective app store and say, give me places to find podcasts, please. You can download one of those apps or maybe you'll have it on your phone automatically as as they do with iPhones. And then you can search for this show and God damn it, you can find the show. And then after you do that, you should tell your friends about the show and have them listen to it, and maybe they'll like it. But either way, while you're there, leave a review, leave a rating, give it five stars if you feel like this is five-star content. Even if it isn't, I would love you forever, particularly if you told me uh, that you left a five-star rating. You are now one of my new best friends on Earth. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at The Couch Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch and you will find us there. Email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com if you like doing stuff like that. Otherwise, guys, you can catch me next week when we'll do a show about the Tuskegee experiment this one is much more bad when it comes to human rights violations than this one was so get ready for that bullshit otherwise guys thanks so much for listening and and coming in every single week and listening to my nonsense as i drone on and on and on i really appreciate it and i haven't missed a week in like 10 straight months because of you guys so thanks so much for continuing to listen to and support the podcast i really appreciate it guys until next time, live long and prosper.